All right. So once again, thank you for being here this morning. My name is Pastor Ryan. Uh, this morning, we're going to be studying the New Testament book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go and open up to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. If you use your phone, your iPad, your tablet, all that is fine. That's no problem at all. So as you're getting to that point, the point of today's teaching, what Paul wants us to know, what you want to be looking out for, is that Paul's going to tell us what the Christian life should look, should look like. It should be different from all other lives. And that's his point. To call yourself a Christian, but to live the exact same way everybody else does in this world is not what Christianity is about. And so what we're going to see Paul talk about today is how this false idea is out there that you can call yourself a Christian, give yourself that label, but again, you don't look any different than anyone else. Paul's saying you can't do that. The very essence of being a Christian is to admit that you're sinful, want to have your sin removed, and then you follow Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to, right? It's not about attending church. Attending church is great, and you should. It's not about uh, putting money in an offering box. That's great. It's not about knowing the popular Christian songs for today. All that stuff is great. The point is you are, sin you are sinful, you need your sins forgiven, and then you follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's what makes you a Christian. So as we continue today through Ephesians chapter 4, be on the lookout for Paul making that distinction. He's going to get very specific in some cases, uh, but he wants to make the case of this is how Christians should look. So let's start at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. All, this, all the words will be on the screen up behind my head. So starting at verse 17, he says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to, to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Woo, Paul's kind of hitting them hard right off the bat, right? And you can see in verse 17, there's actually some frustration there. He's actually saying the instructions for Christian living are clear. We know it's out there. God's called his people out of their old ways, Jew and Gentile. Um, we're not to pursue our own pleasures or, uh, at the expense of others. We shouldn't ign ignore the needs of the poor. We should be loving and forgiving. And Paul, but Paul says people love their old, old lifestyle so much. They don't want to let go of things that they're actually, they've hardened their own hearts. They refuse to see the error of their ways. They just refuse to see it. And so then they become further darkened. And he describes this as the futility of their thinking. It's the way they think. It's the way they see the world, right? It means where they place their priorities, their emphasis, their goals. And in, um, he says in their mindset, they pursue money, fame, all the carnal pleasures with the deluded notion that it's going to bring them happiness, true happiness. And that is simply not true, right? And, you know, to make this personal, don't know, name names or anything like that, but does anyone know of someone who's put tons of time and energy into making as much money as they possibly can or going into all kinds of different stuff, but they're never actually happy? It's true, right? We all know somebody like that. Maybe we have done that. And Paul is saying these are just examples of people who have that futility of thinking. Our, us humans were never created to be satisfied completely with money and possessions, things like that. And here's a really great way to know this. If you've ever spent time, or if you've ever worked in healthcare, if you've ever spent time uh, with someone who's close to the end of their own life, see how much money and possessions matter to them at that point. It doesn't. It, matter, it matters nothing. You know what actually matters to them at that point? 
their faith, their family, their friends, their relationships. That, and those are, those are solid gold to someone in that position. So what Paul is doing here is he starts out this teaching. He's kind of throwing down the gauntlet. He's laying things bare, and he's saying this is how the world lives. It's wrong. It's never going to bring you happiness. This is how we should be living. God calls us to live the exact opposite way. And Paul, is, he's, he's so frustrated, he actually brings the Lord into it. He says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles. So you know how there's one of those commandments that says, do not take the Lord's name in vain? So real careful about saying his name. You don't want to get it wrong. You know, do it right. Paul's saying, no, 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 bring it in. Say his name. I want it right here in the middle of everything. This is about God, what he wants. We're bringing him into it. He says, let it be known the world cannot live the way it has in the past. They have to stop. He also said it's not just their behavior. It's the way they think about things. It's where their emphasis are, where their goals are. It's how they rationalize and how they normalize those types of behaviors. So the way I like to think of it is the way that people sometimes do the mental gymnastics required to convince yourself that that's going to actually make you happy when we know it's not. So he says they have to change their way of thinking. But let's be honest, that's a tall order. It means you have to change ingrained behaviors, things that people value in some cases. You have to change it all, right, where you switch from everything to being about you and satisfying all your needs to where now you're looking outward, outwardly for other people to help them, right, where you make yourself last and others first, the way Jesus did. So it's a fundamental change. It's not superficial. It's not fake. It's not a few inches deep. It's all the way through. It's visible. It's tangible. It's one of those things, you don't have to advertise it. People will see it. They will know it's because it's genuine. And Paul says here in Ephesus, the people, he says, you all look the same. You all look exactly the same because of the refusal to change, refusal to see their old ways. Their hearts are hardened. Due to their ignorance and insensitivity, they're separated from God. See, the whole point, the whole point of Jesus coming to this earth was to wash away our sins, to save us, and to put us in a right relationship with God. But unfortunately, in this case, people are missing out on that because they don't want to know about their sin. They don't want to look at what they're doing is wrong. They don't want to let go of their old lives. And to put this in perspective, the type of lifestyle that Paul is talking about is one of licentiousness. It's kind of those really big words. But it basically means a person who lives in a bad, sinful way, and they're not shy about it. They're not shy about it. They're actually almost kind of proud. They don't care who knows. Now, normally when somebody does something bad or sinful, they get caught doing something, they want to keep it on the down low. Don't let as much people know as, as possible. This is different. This is someone who doesn't care. They don't care. It's a whole different way of thinking, right? So Paul is saying in a worse, it's almost worse in a way because the desire is there not even to hide it. He's trying very hard to get people on the right path to start over again. He's saying there's really a, there's a choice between two paths, doing whatever you want, fulfilling every desire you have, and then following Jesus Christ. And, of course, Paul reminds us of this. He's going to keep going in verses 20 to 22. He says, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self. That's important. We're going to talk about that. So you have to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So again, Paul's up front. He's blunt. He pulls no punches. He said, you were told this. This is clear. You can't claim ignorance. To be a Christian, a Christ follower, disciple, whatever word you like to use, you have to follow Jesus. 
But the first thing you have to do is admit that you sin, that you're not perfect, that you need to be saved, that you need to be made new, right? And he describes it as putting off your old self. And this, this idea is actually, believe it or not, it's not new to Christianity. It's kind of at the core of everything in the Bible. Like if you go back to the, the very beginning, with, to the Israelites with their system of sacrifices, even the way the, the temple was set up, everything about that was they knew they were sinful. They were trying to have their sins removed, get rid of their old self, and become new and be getting a better relationship with God. But the sacrificial system only temporarily removed their sin. It was never permanent, and that's just how things operated until Jesus came into the picture. So if you go forward a little bit in time to get to the New Testament, a man comes on the scene named John the Baptist, and he arrives a little bit before Jesus. But what he does, he takes the old system, and he makes it personal. He makes it in your face. What he did was he would call people out of their homes, their lives, their jobs. He'd call them literally down to the banks of the Jordan River, and he would have them repent of their sins. There wasn't some confession booth off to the side where it's quiet and shh. You're right there. You repent of your sin. You admit that you're a sinner. You say it out loud. He'd take you into the water. You make the decision. You go into the water dirty, unclean, come up new and washed clean. It's a baptism for the repentance of sins. Right? And the whole point was this was public. This was out in the open. It was a huge sign of their personal decision to want to leave their old life behind and start new. They wanted to be close to God, right? So they have to repent, and then they're baptized. And this whole process, this is key. This is the core of what Christianity is about. It's the outward sign of what we believe in our heart. What we want to do is we want to leave our old life, and we want to come become new. There's actually several, it talks about this several times in the New Testament, and I just picked out three. Let's look, look at it. Mark chapter uh, 1, verse 4. And look at, the, look at the, how it's set up. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So they had to repent first, then they're baptized, and they receive forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. What do you see? The old is gone. The new is here. Peter says in Acts uh, chapter 2.38, and Peter said to them, look at the order, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see, this is all about personal choice. You make the personal decision not just to stop the old behaviors, but to repent of it, to own up to it, to actually say, I did this, I do that, I choose to be different. And it's only once we do that that's when the trans, uh, transformation happens. We begin a new life. And in this chapter, we're studying Ephesians 4. Paul is taking everybody. This is, needs to be clear. He's taking everybody right back to that central point. It has to start here. If you don't start from square one, you're not going to get anywhere. right? So the people at the time, they very much missed it. There's people out there living awful lives. Very publicly, they weren't ashamed. And he's trying to bring everybody right back to that central point. So let's continue now into verses 23 and uh, uh, 24, and let's see what he says next. He says, we are to be made new in the attitude of our minds, how we see things, how we understand things, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he says, it's got to be in your mind. It's got to be from within you. You make that conscious choice. 
And a good way to describe it is think of someone who is, who's been in prison and now they're released from prison. When they step out of their old life, what do people normally do? They take off their old prison clothes, their old prison shoes, their old routines. They start a new life, new clothes. Everything about them is new. That's the idea. But what happens if you don't take off, leave the old life behind? People walk out of prison with the same prison clothes, the same prison shoes, and outside in the real world, they're still living as a prisoner. He's saying you have to let go of your old self. Everything is new. To be saved means you are different. You're changed on the outside and on the inside. And now to help us make sure we get there, Paul is going to get very specific on what this looks like. He's going to give us concrete examples, okay? Verses 25 to 27. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. And this is where it gets real serious. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. There's some really important stuff in there, so let's talk about it. So Paul starts off by telling us that we must first put off falsehood, which basically means we need to stop lying. We need to stop twisting the truth, inserting our own little versions of reality to get what we want. We, must, we need to stop doing this, not only because it's dishonest, but he says we're of, the one, we're of one body. So if I lie to you, it affects everybody. If you lie to me, it's the same thing. Because lying at its heart is deception. It's lying to yourself or others, and it's not okay. But interestingly, Jesus spoke about this as well. And when he talked about this, and we're going to read what he said in just a moment, I want you to understand he wasn't talking to a bunch of convicted criminals or local ruffians. He was talking to the religious authorities. And when I have conversations with people out in the outside world, I always ask them, what do you know about Jesus? And a lot of times you get this idea that he's like, he's very relaxed, very mellow. Hey, everybody's cool. I love you. You love me. And all this kind of, very kind of laissez-faire. Everything's great. In a little bit, but mostly he could be very direct. He didn't mess around. And so as we read this, remember, he's talking to the religious authorities about their sin. So John chapter 8, 44. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Think that was a good conversation that went over well? No, it was not. The main point here that he's saying, and he's trying to get them to understand, is that we are sinners. They are sinners. And to deny that, which is what they were doing, is a lie. Does everybody understand what he's talking about here? The statement from Jesus is that Satan, is, since he is the father of lies, to say that we are not a sinner, to ignore that fact, means we are siding with him. We're being influenced by him. So when we tell ourselves a lie, when we don't like to look at our own stuff, we're siding with him. And this is really uh, important, so please understand. The main way that Satan operates the way he operates in this world is to lie to us about the nature of our sin. His number one goal, and to do this by any means necessary, is to get us to refuse to see our own sin, to want to look at it or just kind of, shh, don't look at that over there. That's what he does. So some people think Satan wants you to worship him. That is actually not true. He only needs you to not look at your own sin, to not be forgiven. Have your sins washed away. That's it. That's all that has to happen. That's his goal. That's why the Bible, that's why Jesus in particular is so specific, so non-vague. 
right? Jesus was sent, in, sent to this world to save us from our sins, to bring us back to God. Now, in verses 26 and 27, Paul says something. It's not just good advice, but it gives us another piece of information in how the devil operates. So when Paul says, in your anger, do not sin, and shake your heads if you can relate to this, is how easy it is when you're angry to be less patient, understanding, less forgiving. More apt to want to throw down. Right? Good, because I'm like, I'm up here in church. And I'm like, yeah, we have to admit that it happens, right? It's so much easier when we're angry to be harsh with our judgments to condemn others. And how about this? This is true for me too. How easy it is when you're angry to forget that you've probably done the exact same thing at some point in your past. Right? Now, uh, my parents and my wife were here the other service. So, and I, this is true. Have, however, how many times have you as a parent got angry at your kids? I mean, like, angry. Only for your spouse or your parents to go, well, I remember when you did something just like that. <laughs> or even worse. Right? So Paul is reminding us of how aggressively judgmental we can be when we're angry. He's also saying there's a requirement for how long we can stay there. We can't allow ourselves to remain angry. He says, don't let the sun go down, which means there's a very short window. The longer we stew in our anger, the longer we sit there, the more reasons we look to have a fight and get back at people. See if you're guilty of this too. When you're angry, you're like, how easy is it to start to remember stuff that they did before? When did this and then this, and you, I, and you do again, and then you suddenly you got this huge bag, and you're just ready to really rumble. He's saying you can't do that. The more we do that, the more we open up ourselves to temptation. And this next point shows us how amazing God is, how forgiving he is in spite of everything we just talked about, right? This is one of the reasons that I just, I just, I love the Bible, and this is why God is so different. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the operative word there is while we were sinners. We need to understand this. While we were doing all the things we weren't supposed to do. While we were getting angry and remembering all the stuff they did last time, and now you're going to... While you're being overjudgmental and totally forgiving, you, you remembering you did the exact same stuff. While you're angry and didn't want to let it go, and you want to have the fight tomorrow again. While you were doing that, Christ died for you. Notice it doesn't say that we sinned, we repented, and then Jesus died. We hadn't repented yet. We're still very much doing the stuff we shouldn't. Still busy. One of the greatest uh, parts of the New Testament, um, and I think it's just it's so profound, and this is one of the reasons that I, I believe so strongly in Jesus Christ, what makes Christianity so different, is when Jesus was on the cross after he had been whipped, tortured, beaten, nailed to the cross. The very soldiers that did that to him were standing in front of him. And before he dies, the soldiers are looking at him and they're laughing at him. They're making fun of him. They're trying to make it as worse, as bad as possible. And with some of his last words, it says, he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While they were still doing it, he's asking God, that is one of the single most greatest acts of love and forgiveness. And it's just, it's so profound. So when Paul, when Paul says, don't let the sun go down on you when you're angry, what he's doing is driving us into that mold, that perfection of what Jesus did. 
And he's saying, listen, you either follow Jesus or you don't. You can't claim Christianity when you're in a good mood and things are going well, and the moment things get frustrating and then you, you, know, you got the fisticuffs. You can't do that. If you claim to be a Christian, you're a crea- you are a Christian, even when you're mad, when you're angry, when things aren't going well. Now, he's also not suggesting, and neither am I, that it's easy to always forgive and move on quickly. It's not. To say that would be dishonest. Sometimes it takes time, but Paul is saying clearly the longer it takes, the more you open yourself up for temptation, the worse it's going to be. So Paul's not minimizing your feelings or saying you might not even be right to be angry. He's saying no matter what, keep it short. Mend the relationship. Forgive. Keep each other in unity. Anger, lies, deception, dishonesty, they cause separation. But love, patience, and forgiveness bring unity. Paul's simply being honest and telling us the difficult truth. But that's also the best way to help us get there. Let's look now at verse 28, because Paul's going to talk to us about the purpose of work. He says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So obviously the first part means exactly what Paul intends. He says, if you steal, goodness, you need to stop. You need to stop, you need to work. Because everything about that is bad. But on the one, so on the one hand, he makes a statement about stopping that, but he says, don't just stop, you need to do useful work. Take care of yourself so you can also be generous and help others. I want to pause for a moment and understand, make sure we all understand what he means, because I've had questions about this as a pastor. So let me, let's also read 2 Thessalonians 3.10 because Paul also says this and it gives us some more information. He said, for when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So let's get some context here. First off, we are always called to be generous, no matter what, to people in need. But the Bible does not tell us to give money or assistance to someone who clearly can work, work is available, and they simply, over time, choose not to work. There is a clear difference. So again, let's, let me expand on that just to make sure. There's a difference between someone who can't work, is having a hard time finding work, or works and can't make ends meet. We are to be generous. You can have that, and then in some rare cases, work is available, they can work. Work is available, they just simply refuse or do not work. There is a distinction. And the reason I want to be specific on that is because we want to be good represent, representatives of Jesus Christ. So this is what I do. I am generous. I'd really try to do that. But I don't like to, if I can, simply give someone, say, $50 and never see them again. I would like to know who they are. What is their name? What are they going through? What's really happening? How can I be there for you? Do you need help getting a job? Do you need help getting to a job? Do you need extra clothes? Do you know Jesus Christ? You have addiction issues, mental health issues. How can I help you because I actually care about you and I like to know you, if possible? So again, we should always be generous. It's okay to ask questions so that you can best help them, okay? And that's kind of where he's going with that. Uh, Let's jump in now to verses 29 and 30 because he's going to talk about wholesome and unwholesome talk. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I like this because this is cool how Paul describes wholesome and unwholesome talk. Unwholesome talk is anything 
that, can be that brings a brother or sister down. It causes division. It's gossip. It's negative talk. It's stirring the pot. You kind of know where I'm talking about there. All right. Um, it can bring the person down in their own eyes or in the eyes of others. It just doesn't come from a good place. Wholesome talk, on the other hand, it builds people up, builds relationships, builds understanding, forgiveness, patience. Wholesome talk can actually help somebody who's angry. You ever been really, really angry, and then you have a family member or a friend that just helps you pause and take a deep breath and give you some wise words, and you think, okay, maybe I need to pause for a second. And that's what he's talking about. We can walk back anger with that kind of thing. So it definitely works. Paul also says something cool at the end of verse 29, and I think it needs some attention, because he likely means that what you say is not simply valuable to the person you're talking to, but everybody else in the vicinity. He says that, that it may benefit those who listen. He's saying that what you say and do, how you appear, benefits others. And this is 100% true, whether you realize it or not. When people find out that you're a Christian, family, friends, coworkers, they watch and they see how you behave how you react to life's ups and downs. They also see how you influence other people in their ups and downs in lives. They can see if you're a pot stirrer. Do you, are you the person to go through for good gossip? They can also hear you be a calming voice, someone who's patient, kind, and understanding. Or do you have a wholesome voice that builds men's relationships? And then in the New Testament, there's a book called James, and this guy, James, says a lot of really good stuff. But one of the things that I think that he does particularly well is he's very blunt. He's just out there. He, he's one of these guys, I think, he would have been a great high school coach because he just would have been, I mean, he just would not mess around. You would know right off the bat if you're doing good or not. And so in James chapter 3, he makes some very direct but wise statements about things that we say, how we talk. So James uh, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, and then uh, verse 8. He says, likewise. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is, it, and is itself set on fire by hell. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of poison. Does that seem vague? <laughs> No, I mean, that guy's harsh, right? He compares the damage your tongue can do to a small spark that starts a great forest fire. He says it corrupts your whole body. No one can tame the tongue. He calls it a restless evil. That is some serious language. Paul teaches about <laughs> wholesome and unwholesome talk, and James is over here describing how you can set whole forest fires and destroy your life, and your tongue is a deadly poison. What we need to take from both of these is that everything that we say and do is hugely impactful, not just for others, for us, but for others as well. Words aren't words. Words can cut people down, and they can build people up. Words can take someone who's barely hanging on and push them over the edge. Words can take someone who's barely hanging on and bring them back, give them hope and understanding. And when Paul and James talk this way, their true purpose is to remind us what it means to follow Jesus Christ, that who we actually represent. Now, the last two verses for today, Paul makes such a contrast in what he's seeing and where he thinks the world should be. And it's verses 31 to 32. He says, get rid of all the bitterness, 
rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. If you, if you, if you kind of take a step back, look at verses 31 and 32. They are like polar opposites, right? Paul is talking to people who brawl, which means get in fistfights, slander, and have every form of malice. That's kind of heavy duty. I don't know how many forms of malice they are, but they have them all. All right? He's talking to this group, and he's saying, this is where you are, and this is where you need to be. Right? Now, to put this into perspective, once you think about all that and that lifestyle, that can be kind of shocking, and you can kind of see and kind of get an idea of the heavy lifting that it's going to take to go from here to here. But what you really need to do is see the miracle, and this is what's so great about Jesus Christ, is a transformation that can happen through him. Right? It's where he, we take people, a society that is that's doing awful things, and they admit their sin. They don't want to do that anymore. They let go of their old self, and they become followers of Jesus Christ and have a whole new life. And that's really what this whole chapter is about, transformation. True transformation through Jesus Christ is to recognize first that we are sinners, to understand that, to admit that. We see our old way of life, and then we want to let it go and become new. Paul is calling them out. He even lists things off, brawling, fighting, lewd behavior. But he's also calling people to see how great our God is. Our God is so great and powerful, he can take a rambunctious group of people, sinful, prideful, but because of the work of the Son, show them their sin. and They can be completely transformed. But that's not all. This is the beautiful part. In that same process, those people who are saved, made new, affect all the people in their orbit too. They see that. They see what Jesus can do. So as those people are being made new and being trained up, they're also being an example of what Jesus is to those around them. So everything in Paul's teaching today is about correcting us, getting us on the right path, but then helping us to understand that we can help others too in the exact same way. This is what the church is for. This is why the church was started. This is why Jesus, when he was hanging on that cross dying, asked his father to forgive the people because he wanted them to be saved, truly be saved. So this is what we're going to do today. If anyone here has not accepted Jesus Christ into your life, we, we want to give you that opportunity. We want you to know him because that's where it starts. Nothing will happen, nothing will change until you admit you're a sinner and want to be made new. So what's going to happen is in a minute we're going to say a prayer and in that prayer, all you have to do is repeat the words that I say. If you would like to invite Jesus in your heart, please do that. No one's going to ask you if you've done it. There's no test, but it's there for you, and only you can do that. But at the same time, in that same prayer, we're going to pray for everybody here. Because no matter where you are in your faith, no matter where you've come from, we want God to continually continue to use you, to increase your faith, to make you that example, to help others as they go through struggles as well. Okay? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today... We hear each one of us pray for strength to endure all trials. 
May everything we go through, both good and bad, may it strengthen our faith, our resolve, and may we be good examples of you and your love. Father, today we also recommit ourselves to you. Many times in life we get pulled away, we fall out of sync, but today we make the choice to recommit to you. It's our choice, and we choose you. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope, that we're saved, that we're forgiven. And Father, specifically we pray that as our faith grows, you will use each one of us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom. Give us opportunities to use the unique talents you've given each one of us. Each one of us here is capable of moving mountains through you. We thank you for the life that you've given us. We thank you for the church, and most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen. Amen.